Let's take it to the edge. Let's get the flitted. Let's talk about the night perspective. Let's get sharp. Let's get a little real. Hey guys, I'm Dan Eastland with Dogwood Custom Knives, and I'm here with Kyle Daly of KH Daily Knives, and this is The Knife Perspective, episode number 023, Getting a Handle on Micarta with Greg Hansen. How you doing, Kyle? Doing pretty good, Dan. I'm uh, pretty excited for this one. I've, I've been a big fan of Greg's work, and uh, I'm excited to talk to him some more. How are you doing? I am getting better all the time. How's the elbow? You know, or bicep. I have got this great new trick I can do. It's called fully extending your arm. Very good. Big milestone for me. I got out of the brace last week. Start PT this week. Um, I'm piddling in the shop a little bit now, but I should be back in production in about six weeks. Very good. So it is a happy, shiny new day in the Eastland household. Nice. I'm sure uh, sure everybody's going to be glad having you be able to to move everything and not be in pain. I think mostly they're just looking forward to me leaving the house and getting in the shop or really going anywhere, but in the house. <laughs> nice. Well, no, you've been reading a whole bunch. You've uh, been reading any more of that metallurgy book. Um, I have, and I've learned a little bit and I've learned even more that I don't know. Nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you ever want to look at something funny, look up the uh, Dunning Kruger graph. So there's uh it's pretty funny. It's like has a knowledge level on the vertical axis and then uh or confidence on the vertical axis and then uh knowledge level on the x axis and you have uh mount stupid when you are uh really confident and know just a little bit and then you like fall into the the valley of despair when you uh <laughs> you learn all the stuff you don't know you don't know. <laughs> The more you know, the less confident you are. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I, I am starting to get a handle on how, on what I need to know, which is a huge step forward, but it's a little demoralizing. It also makes me really, really, really appreciative for all the heat treat data sheets where all the work's been done for me. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of people that spend a lot of time and money to make those uh, data sheets. And I'm I'm always surprised when people are like, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't follow those sheets. I, I do my own. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so whatever. But anyway, yeah. uh, we got our uh, sponsors tonight, Dragonfly Bladeworks. Check him out. John Kaufman of uh, Dragonfly Bladeworks. And you can find his knives at Old Town Cutlery and along with Cage uh, Daily Knives and Dogwood Custom Knives. And the po- also podcast is also sponsored by Cage Daily Knives and Dogwood Custom Knives. Uh, you can also find Dogwood Custom Knives at Knife Center and the Knife House. So uh, check them out and uh, get some get some awesome knives. I imagine with the the couple of months off that Dan's had, though, that their inventory is probably going way down. Yeah, I think Knife Center might have a couple of cap hearts left, and I think that's the only thing that's on the market right now. I've got a couple that were on my bench before I hurt my arm that just need 
just need some light handle work. And I hope to get those on the market the next week or two. Very cool. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm a little wiped out right now. Yeah. I can imagine trying to heal up from that. Uh, getting that reattached is probably uh, quite a bit of healing your body's going through. Uh, it is. And the, the big fear was if I put too much stress on that bicep tendon, it'll break loose from the anchor. Yeah. I imagine that would be bad. It is because they basically put, it's kind of cool. It looks like a really small uh, drywall anchor and they drilled it into the bone of my forearm and then threaded the tendon through it. Wow. But if that breaks loose, then kind of like trying to put a new drywall anchor on top of an old drywall anchor, there's going to be issues. Yeah. I kind of had to do that in my uh, boy's bedroom when they ripped the curtain out of the wall. (laughs) (laughs) Please tell me they were trying to climb it. Oh, they were most certainly trying to climb it. Uh, you're, you're raising them right, buddy. <laughs> um, now, if, if one of them will stick a butter knife in an electric socket, you know you're really raising kids. Well, I've got um, I've got all the plastic plugs still stuck in all that stuff from all the baby proofing we did. I can't. I'm not sure how old Jack was, but we were working around the house back when we were living in Georgia. And there was a pop and the lights on the upstairs floor went out. And we went in Jack's room because that's where the pop came from. Looking around and I go in his bathroom and the GFI has been tripped and I reset it. And Beth is trying to figure out you know, what could have happened. And I just look at Jack and I said, what'd you put in the outlet? And Beth looks at me like I'm an idiot. And he does the, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, look, son, I know what you did. I just need to know what did you stick in the outlet? I need to know if the outlet's still a problem. And he finally gets really embarrassed and reaches under his bed and pulls out this nickel and it's, it's black and there's a little chunk that's burned out of it and he gets the talking to about how dangerous it was it could have killed him it could have started a fire you know never again and as we're leaving you know we're we're out in the hall and Beth said you know how could you possibly know that he stuck something in the outlet and I said well when I was his age I used a butter knife to pry the safety cap off the outlet and stuck a knife in to see what would happen yeah Yeah, no replacement for experience, huh? Yeah, she just had to shake her head. I'm like, no, no, everybody I know has done that. <laughs> nice. Uh, so I uh, want to thank everybody that participated in the fundraiser for 5050 Forge. We'll be, when you hear this episode, we'll have already started drawing for all the people that are entered in it. And uh, we'll start, uh, the three lucky people will be winning some knives and then a Two other people are going to be winning some awesome Micarta from Greg. And then there'll be uh, some other uh, wood from Jason C. Williams on Instagram. There are going to be some Atlas material as well. Yeah, uh, that's supposed to come on Mon- the Monday before this show airs. So I'll be I'll be doing some some Instagram lives and some posts on that when when that handle material comes in, showing that off. But if, you, if, you're li- if this is the first you're hearing about it, you're a little too late. So yeah. sorry. Next time somebody crushes a finger off, get ahead of the curve. <laughs> yeah. Want to intro our guest tonight? All right. I found Greg on Instagram. I guess I guess it was about a year and a half ago. And the unique pattern and the really bold colors of his Macarta is what caught my eye. So I gave him a try and I was really impressed with the quality. It's the density is really consistent. There's no voids, no soft spots. I really enjoyed watching his style evolve. I really love the the patterns that he's doing. 
And I really appreciate the consistency in the work. The The last piece that I work with is just like the first piece I work with. It's it's really consistent and really stable. And it's sometimes hard to find that in the, the boutique Micarta markets. So I have, obviously, I have drank the Kool-Aid. Cannot say enough good stuff about his Micarta. Yeah, I'm in the same boat, too. So, Greg, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Yeah. Our first question we like to to ask our our guests on the show, uh, where'd you grow up? Uh, Walnut Creek, California. It's the East Bay Area. Okay. How long were you there? Is that where you kind of, I know you just recently moved from California to where you're at, where your shop is now, right? In Idaho? Yeah. I, um, I was there until, let's see, when I was, got out of high school, I, I went down to Central California for a while and kind of moved around different places. But, um, in the mid eighties, I, I moved to Montana for, I was there about five years. And then I went back to, to the Sacramento area Very cool. until last fall. What were you doing so, out in Montana? Been around a little bit. Uh, I was trying to survive. <laughs> um, yeah, you don't make a lot of money there unless, uh, you know, it, it was a small town and as a general contractor, that that's what I was doing. Um, you just, you're not going to make it. So, uh, I ended up working in a sawmill for about a year. And after that, I, uh, I had built a house and it, so I sold that and went back to California. So yeah, there's, there's not a lot of money to be made, but fortunately there's not many, not very many places to spend it. That's true. Yeah. And you know, it's, I don't know. I, I mean, I would live there again, but I'm a little smarter now. So yeah, all of us are get older. Yeah. I've never been to Idaho, but I've heard it's really beautiful out there. It's nice. Um, it It's really not that much different from looks-wise from the area that I came from, but a lot less people, and and I love it here. That It's it's easy living for me. Yeah, a little less taxes and everything at the, from the, everything. the government. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, I think, I think gas is about a buck a gallon cheaper and just everything. Wow. You know, it's we're all going to just take a moment and smile. We're going to stick to our no politics policy, but we're all just going to smile for a minute. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that, and that was a big reason. I, I have three sons. One lives over in, in uh, West Seattle. One lives in Arizona. And my oldest son lives in uh, Meridian, the town next door. And, you know, as far as the, the climate and the politics, um, I, I picked Idaho. Nice. So as we all know, knives are the single most important discovery ever. Matter of fact, they they are the axis that the world revolves around. So the the next question has to be, what was your first knife? My first knife, and I still have it, was a a tree brand, a a Boker little pocket knife that my older brother gave me for, I think it was my, around my fifth birthday, just a little two-bladed pocket knife. Do you still have it? Uh-huh. Yep. Nice. Awesome. If you don't, if you wouldn't mind snapping a picture of that, we'd love to put it with the the post for this on Instagram. Okay. I'll um yeah, I'll have to find it. Have it beings that I just moved uh last fall, some things are kind of MIA. <laughs> All right. The good news is you could take a picture of any two bladed boker and we won't know the difference. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> nice. And you won't do that, but you could, I'm just saying. Right. right. I'll strike I'll strike Boker off our sponsor list here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. 
I was in stage two negotiations with him, man. <laughs> All righty. Well, I'll let you continue that then. So how did how'd you get into making Micarta? Well, let's let's go with what was the first Micarta. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's Kyle, there's a whole list of questions here. I don't know if you you see that. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, f- I figured the uh, how he got into there would probably be the the first Micarta he made, right? Well, the the first one I made was was really junk. So, well, maybe I ought to tell you how I how I got into it. So, uh, a friend of mine, um, Derek Costa, he's Ohlone Knives. Uh, he came over one day and he said he had just got off the phone, tried to order some different color material, and uh, he says, "Dude, you should make my carta." And I said, "What is that?" And he showed me, and you know, knife handle material. And I was like, "Oh, okay." And because go on YouTube, so I went on YouTube, and there's a lot of Mickey Mouse stuff there. And I guess the, the thing I like to do uh, is just make things better, you know, try to make it better. So I looked at that, and I'm like, "Well, I can make that better." But I probably spent the first four or five months using polyester resin, and you know, part of that was just driven by the cost of epoxy. Finally got to the place where I had to use epoxy. You just, you can't make a good product with that polyester resin. So, uh, you know, I, you got to suck it up and go buy the epoxy and start throwing epoxy away instead of polyester resin. So. Well, theoretically you learn, your, you make your early mistakes with the cheap stuff and then you, uh, then you upgrade. Yeah, and it, you know, unfortunately, there there is no, or I didn't know of any source where you could actually get good information. Um, you know, a lot of it was just real subjective, and epoxy is kind of funny stuff. You know, there is no no set formula. Everything is a variable: the the temperature, the the volume, and you know, for a new guy doing that stuff, you're just like, wow, this little batch takes forever to dry, and the big batch dried fast what happened that's how it goes and the guys on youtube will tell you how they do it but they don't necessarily know why so when you start experimenting you don't know what a variable to control well right and it you know and i would get in discussions with people and they would say oh just you know don't don't waste your money trying to make a big piece make a little piece first you know and it's like you don't understand how it works yeah (laughs) economy of scale people yeah well, you have to, you know, with, with epoxy, you, you really, to get good data, you, you have to do it exactly what you want to end up with. Yeah. And so a big block, it, it costs about $150 materials to cast that. So as you're throwing that away, it gets old. Yeah, but it doesn't scale one-to-one. So if you want to make big batches, you got to practice doing big batches. Correct. Okay. Oh, uh, we, we already started down the, uh, how did you learn to make my carta? Right. Um, so pretty much self-taught. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, you know, the, one of the things I learned real quick is that there's not many people out there to help you. Even the manufacturers didn't, you know, I, I went through three or four and I just wasn't getting any technical support. Um, you know, and then, and now, and now I deal with, uh, system three and they have great technical support and a great product. So, you know, that, that made it easy. Um, it made, it made it so that I was able to do things that I just never could do before. 
And I imagine it's enough of a niche market that there's a lack of data and some of the big companies just aren't motivated in, in putting the time in. Yeah, because, you know, first off, I'd have to explain to them what I was trying to make, you know, because, you know, they they were uh, specializing in maybe boat resin or, you know, the home hobbyist or, yeah. you know, the, they no, just don't I'm not know. trying to buy a glass, glass of boat keel. I'm trying to make my carta. Right, right. And even that, you know, it, it was, you know, doing the, the research and actually my carta is a, a trademark name. And so I, when I started out, I called it Unique Micarta, and then I realized somebody could get mad at me. And uh, so I changed it. And that's why it's called G-Carta now. Ah. And then I've, and I've applied for the, the trademark on that. Okay. Very cool. I was my carte myself, but I just like the frame. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is, is that like Joe Dierte instead of Joe Dirt? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I can up a little bit. <laughs> nice. So uh when you were when you were learning, what uh what kind of things would you do differently now that you know what you know uh when you were starting out? Is there any any um any way you would have gone about learning learning differently now or uh some of your, your first press designs or something? Probably not. You know, I I've had people approach me and, and say, well, you know, I want to do this. What's the best way to learn? And I said, well, go grab 20 grand and throw it in the toilet. Um, <laughs> how do, how do you become, a, how do you make a million dollars making my car to start with two? Yeah, <laughs> it's, um, yeah, you, you just have to do it. You know, it's, uh, I've had like last May, I was using a, um, a faster curing resin. And literally the thing started smoking before I could get it into the press. Cause all the heat. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That probably affects with the, the altitude and the, the temperature and everything that you're mixing it and everything too. Right. Well, the, the, the three, the big three factors are the, the volume of epoxy because it, it generates its own heat. It's an exothermic reaction. It's exponential with the volume. It's not. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yep. So you, you have that, and then the the temperature of the product, you know, that you're beginning with, and then the uh, the ambient uh, temperature. So, you know, here in Idaho, I I have electric blanket that you know covers the wraps around the jugs of epoxy. I've got about thirty gallons out in the the shop right now. It comes in five gallon jugs. So I bought a a big electric blanket and it goes under and over and I can, I can keep it at a reasonable temperature. And then the, the presses I use have heated beds in them. So, you know, I can, I can control to some degree, like the curing time and make sure that they're getting a full cure. Yeah. Uh, in the winter, my shop's not, uh, not climate control. And in the winter I have to cure my handles in a hot box. Hmm. Yeah. It it's it makes a huge difference. That's one of the things that I uh, just put into my garage two weeks ago. I got a electric heater mounted to the ceiling now, so keeps it uh, nice and toasty in there. When I moved out of the basement and my first my first shop out that winter, I started having some handle problems and couldn't figure it out until I finally realized that the shop was getting so cold at night that the the curing process was either being retarded or stopping. Mm-hmm. Wow. 
Yeah, now I I have, you know, I do a post cure where I can uh, put the whole block in an oven and, you know, then I'm confident. And then then I also test the hardness of every block. So, you know, I know when I'm coming out at an 82 or 83, you know, something in that range or above, I got a nice hard block. I, I have, as I said in the intro, I really have been impressed with the consistency in your product. Well, thank you. And you get variations from one maker to the next, and I can I can allow for that, but I get really frustrated with significant variations in from one batch to the next from the same guy. And yours, you know, after the second time that I use some of your material, I know which what belt grit, what grit progression to use, how much pressure to use, and it's been the same every time. Oh, good. Uh, which makes my life considerably easier. Well, and, you know, the the most asked questions that I get are all about sanding it. And, you know, a, a lot of guys try to compare it to the commercially made uh, Fenelic. And, you know, I use a Shore D hardness tester, and, and the epoxy is designed for 82. And I get a little bit higher than that, and probably because of the fabric in it. But the, the Fenelic is anywhere from about 91 to 95. So it's, it's harder. It's a different product. And, and just like you guys know your steels, it's, it's important to, to know that different handle material and how they'll react to heat or machine sanding or things like that. And I assume that high hardness is why it takes such a, a good polish. I think so. Yeah. And I'm, um, I just kind of went through a transition in the way that I do it. And uh, I'm using vacuum chambers now and it's, it's really helping a lot. Uh, Is that to reduce voids or is that for the density or is that for curing or, or what will that, what does that help? Uh, For the density and, and the stability, you know, with moisture, it, it comes out, it's, it's literally, a different color because you get much better saturation into the fiber and it's just, it's more consistent. It's a, it's a much better product. Uh, is, is that why your color seems a little brighter? Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's, that's it. it. It, what happens like with, with my material, when you're sanding it with the coarser grits, it, it, it's kind of white. And with the old stuff, it wouldn't start really showing color till about 400 grit. The stuff that I'm making now, it'll start showing, you know, decent color at 180 or 220. Wow. Um, it's, yeah, it, yeah, I'm, I'm still kind of learning about it, but it, it's just better, you know, it's, um, but the, but the main thing with it is like, I, I tell a lot of guys, if, if they're not getting the finish they want, go back down to 220 or, or 400 and go up through the grits again. Usually people will go up a grit too quick. Uh, one of the early things I learned on finishing my cardo was rather than looking for the scratches, uh, look for the sheen. And uh-huh. if you see inconsistencies in the, the sheen, then you've got little scratches there. You need to drop your grit back down. Right. And, and get those scratches out. Yeah. And I, you know, I think that's, that's a good way to do it. Um, cause it, it will polish. Also, one of the things, so like cutting on a table saw or a bandsaw, do you have any recommendations for what blades to use for cutting for first-time makers or people for using it for the first time? Well, I use uh, a table saw, and the blade that I use is designed for pergo flooring. Hmm. And I've probably gone through $1,000 worth of blades. And, you know, I, I've tried 
$150 blades and $30 blades. And the Pergo gives me the, the longest life. It doesn't give, it doesn't really give the best finish necessarily like with a, a new blade, but it will last so much longer and be consistent. So, you know, it's, it's a good value. I've been experimenting with, it's a circular saw blade that they make them for cutting both ferrous and non-ferrous metals. Right. And the one I'm using is non-ferrous. Uh, and I use a, a 10 inch on a cabinet saw uh-huh. and have gotten, I've been getting really good results. The The blade life is, is way better than I used to get on the, the traditional woodworking carbide blades. Right. And I'm getting fairly clean blades. It's a, it's a really stable blade. Yeah. So I'm getting clean cuts. Right. But I'm going to try the, the Pergo flooring blade next. Yeah. It, it's significantly better. The, the Trex blade works well. I, I typically get my blades at Home Depot. So they're the Freud brand. Yep. And, um, the, the Pergo one just shines all the time. That the one thing I've, I've learned about them though is, uh, you, if you, if you try pushing your material through too quickly, the blade will start, you'll get a vibration and, yeah. you know, you can, you can feel it, you can see it. And if, if you do it too much, the teeth are going to fall off. Huh. Um, um, and depending on how fast that blade is going at the time, that could be an issue. Yeah. Fortunately, they've all gone down in the saw, but <laughs> so far. Yeah. That, that would make you pucker when uh, you start hearing the sound of metal ricocheting around. Well, not just metal carbide. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so Dan, that uh, blade you were talking about, do those come? In, are those full kerf or are those the the O ninety three? They're full kerf. If you look at it, you think it is a, a traditional like wood cutting blade. Okay. Um, I got it on Amazon. I'll have to I'll have to find it. Um, I guess it was fifteen twenty years ago. Rigid came out with the first ones. And you know now there's there's aftermarkets. I'll uh, I'll find the link for you. Yeah, Freud uh, makes right. one. Yeah, cool. Yeah, I've got a got in the show notes here. Dan to find saw blade link. So everybody check that out. Um, and <laughs> yeah. if Dan hasn't found it by the time this show comes up, just go ahead and email me. <laughs> <laughs> if you want it to be answered next year. <laughs> Uh, so a little bit of we kind of just jumped right into micarta uh, a little bit of background for some of the the people new to the industry what is micarta well the the real stuff is a phenolic it's it's a completely different process from what i do what i do is either paper or cloth and and recently i I've, I've tried leather and epoxy and with heat and pressure so my son about a year and a half ago is a mechanical engineer and he designed and built a press for me, a 40 ton heated bed press. And, um, that, that's been a lifesaver. It just, I couldn't, I couldn't do what I do without it. So it, you know, it's, it's a lot of pressure, you know, C clamps and two by fours, you're just not going to get it. Yeah. You're going to get voids and you're going to get inconsistencies. Yeah. Yeah. This, this, in fact, it was last May when we built the press, uh, we, we did it with materials that we had mostly, you know, we just, you got to try it out, see what's going to happen. And the jacks that I, that I use, uh, are designed for a 80 PSI maximum. Well, last May, as things were starting to harden up before they got in the press, I, I just kept cranking the pressure up. Um, as one does. 
yeah, you're hoping to save your $150. It's about to go in the garbage, you know? And, and so I, I, I pressed the bottom of the press out. So <laughs> I, uh, I, you know, if rebuilt that. And if there's going to be a failure, that might be the best place for it though. It really was. Yeah. It was safe, you <laughs> yeah. know? Um, and Luckily, then nothing got shot across the, the shop. No, it was a slow thing, you know, and it just, um, it would creak and groan a little bit, but how I noticed it was the, the, you know, the bed was no longer flat and it was like, Oh no. Um, the, the bed on that Blanchard ground aluminum. So when it's not flat, you know, something's wrong. So as a, a, just a general term, micarta generally means fiber and epoxy pressed together. It cures to make something hard. I think so. It, it's kind of like Kleenex or Q-tips, you know. It's yeah. It was the name Westinghouse created, right? Yes, Westinghouse uh, one trademark. And it was originally for the electrical industry, wasn't it? Right. Yeah. They um, Westinghouse. Two engineers developed it for Westinghouse, and then they soon left and started their own company, and that was called Formica. Oh. And so, um, my guess is that they were using mica as a as an electrical insulator and. This was for mica, right? Ah. I'm just, I'm guessing. Uh, That sounds like a very engineer thing to do. Yeah. Yeah, we're we're usually pretty creative, aren't we? (laughs) I I have, uh, you know, some of the most fun I have is just naming this stuff, right? And so. Man, I was the inverse. I hate coming up with names of patterns. Um, Originally, all of my patterns were pattern number one, pattern number four. And my mentor, Andy, just had to sit me down. I go, no, man, that's that's horrible marketing. You you have to have a name for every pattern. Some people can pull it off. Look at uh, Randall Knives, yeah. Yeah, and that was my inspiration. But it was pointed out to me that I ain't no Randall. <laughs> at least not yet. <laughs> yeah. Um, cool. so, uh, so the general term for my card, and then I guess technically, if it's not... Micarta trademarked Micarta. It's phenolic. Well, the phenolic is it's a different process, and so okay. one of the reasons that it always is about the same color is is the glue in it is you know it's very amber, and so you know they can't get the bright colors with it. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you know, um, about a year ago, I hired a, a, an artist. She studied and worked in the fashion design industry. And so she likes colors, as you guys have probably seen. So right now, we probably have about 2,000 yards of fabric ready to go. And she can go in the, in the cut room and, and create whatever. And so somebody, right. you know, they might give us a concept. And one, one time we were on a, a phone call, and it was on speakerphone, and there was a, uh, a name mentioned, you know, of, of a company. And... While I was still on the phone call, Mikey, you know, went in and, and designed and put together a block and then we cast it that night. Oh, wow. So, you know, it can happen pretty quick. <laughs> yeah. When inspiration strikes, right? Yeah. Very cool. So what is some of your, your inf- where do you get your, your inspiration? What are some of your influences for your, your patterns and your designs? Well, um, <laughs> that's a great question. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, some of them, well, well for instance, um, you know, I, I do one called the ripple cut and corrugated roofing was my inspiration for that. And, um, 
you know, so I made a mold to create that kind of a wave pattern. And it's still my favorite one to use, but I'm, I pretty much stand alone there, I think. <laughs> um, yeah, I've used a little bit of that in the blue and black and really love it a lot. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's gonna it's gonna be better with the with the vacuum chambers. It's gonna show better because it's it'll be more vibrant. The maze cut is my inspiration on that was was crazy fiber. You know, I I saw his stuff on Instagram and I'm like, man, how does he do that? And I looked at it and um, I'm like, well, I can do it in one direction, but he does it like in all directions, and and I still can't figure out how he does it, but. I follow him. He follows me. We like each other's stuff. And, yeah. And so at any rate, uh, you know, it's friendly competition. I, you know, competition's great. It makes everybody better. Yeah. You know, take him to the, get him down in the pit at blade show, get a couple of strong liquor drinks in him. He'll, he'll spill the beans. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, and people will say to me, oh, why don't you do carbon fiber? Why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? And it's like, yeah, there's guys out there doing a great job and I'm not trying to, um, I, I want to do my thing, you know, and, and, uh, Mikey and I work really well as a team. And a lot of these concepts are, are accidental mistakes. You know, the, the bun cut, that was not at all what I was hoping to come up with, but it's better. But the, the first ones of those I was making in, in cake baking, uh, pan. And, you know, it just blows them up. And it's like, well, okay. Then I got these big zip ties and, and use those with them. And I'd press them till the zip ties popped. <laughs> and, you know, now I'm using three eighths wall, eight inch diameter pipe and they don't break. Funny thing. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But then, then you got to figure out, well, you know, when the first forms break, well, getting the, the, uh, the material out of the form is easy because it's, it's halfway out already. Mm-hmm. When you got three eighths wall pipe, uh, you know, now oh, yeah. how do you get it out? So I had to create a, a way to do that. One, one solution always causes another problem. <laughs> so the, the, what, what was the, it was not called the bun, but you do like a, a jelly roll. I think it was, was another pattern that you guys do quite a bit of that I think is really cool. Yeah. That, and that was Mikey's, Mikey's concept and she originally, she goes, she told me what she wanted to do. And I said, there's, there's not, not enough time. Uh, that epoxy will be hard before you get started. So when we switched to the, the slower epoxy, you know, she's like, now we can do this. And I'm like, right, cool. So we started doing it and it was a, it was a big hit. Yeah. There was the, that nebulous one that you did, uh, that, uh, sold out really quick before I saw it. And, that one was super cool with the the like brass mesh and stuff in it. Yeah, that it, it was copper. Um, yeah, the Helix Nebula. Uh, we're ge- we're gonna do that again. Um, she's got one ready to go. It's uh, the new process is slower. So the you know the downside for me is that I got to plan better. You know, like the first one I put in the vacuum chamber, I I fell asleep and it hardened in the vacuum chamber. You still have to you're up against the pot life. So I have to, you know, I got to plan when, when I'm going to lay this up and then it will be in the vacuum chamber long enough, but not too long so that I can get it into the press. And, you know, I've come out in the shop in my pajamas and put them in the press because the epoxy doesn't wait. 
Yeah, you you've got to you've got to make sure you're several steps ahead of where you are. Yes, every on everything. So, and that for me, you know, sixty three years old, I forget enough stuff anyway. It's that's a challenge, you know. It's like, oh no, <laughs> and I I probably probably two or three nights a week I don't go to bed. I just get more done out there, you know, because I can stay focused on one thing. Yeah, I see. When I wake up in the morning, sometimes at four or five o'clock in the morning, I'll see like uh, an hour, 43 minutes ago or whatever <laughs> different posts from you. Yeah, I get messages from knife makers all over and they're like, go to bed. <laughs> <laughs> I'm nice. old. I don't sleep yeah. anymore. I I like to sleep and everything. But, um, you know, this I'll, I got to tell you, I I've been in in construction. I graduated from from high school when I was 17 and I went right to work in the construction uh, industry. And, you know, it, it, it's been fine. I, I really don't have any complaints, but I, I didn't realize until I started making this full time, how much I hated contracting. And I love doing this. You know, it's like a day off is a day in the garage for me. It's like, I don't, I got so many things that I want to do. You know, I don't want to, I don't sit around and, and wonder what I'm going to do next. It's like, how am I going to get it done? Yeah. Very cool. When you love what you do, you never work a day in your life is what they say. It's true. I, I love this. And you know what? Everything just kind of fits together. Since I moved to Idaho, you know, I, I might be thinking, yeah, you know, I need a, I need to get one of these over here or something. And I'll look on Facebook and somebody's got one for sale and, and, you know, like, like the leather, I, I had that idea for a while and, you know, I, I looked at leather prices online and it's like, that stuff's kind of expensive, you know? And I, I went on in, uh, Facebook and a guy was selling like a, a garbage bag full for $8 and I'm like, well, I can do that. And so you're talking about just like a big box of scrap yep. pieces or yeah. Nice. Yeah, just scraps and and so what I did on the on those the first stuff that I got from him, a, a saddle maker had retired, and so they were just selling off stuff that he had, and some was new, some was used, and so I I went through and I sorted it out and and then I I shredded the the thin stuff and I reboxed the thick stuff and I and I sold that on my website. I still have some, I think, but I really like the way it came out. And then we called it Calcarta, you know, and so. <laughs> We we have fun with the names. Like, yeah, why not? Very cool. What's been your uh, What's been your favorite so far? Um, you, you know, the blue quad ripple cut is consistently on the top of my list. But you know, there's been there's been other ones that that are really good, and that's that's one of the challenges that Mikey and I have with this is, you know, some of the best stuff that we do is it doesn't sell very well. Um, you know, and for whatever reason, um, you, you know, you just don't know what's going to happen. So my two favorite knife patterns that I make, what I consider my single two best patterns uh-huh. are my worst sellers. I've, I've got one that I have maybe sold four of them in the last five years, and it's hands down the best pattern I make. Wow. What, why do you suppose that is? Um, I don't know if it's because... I'm unusual. You know, what what appeals to me is rare, generally, um, or if uh-huh. it's 
that I'm just crap at marketing. Okay. I I really I don't have a good answer. Um, right. Yep. Maybe a little bit of both. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, marketing. You know, I've I've had to change the way I think about you know quite a few things in that you know I'm I'm probably not a very good communicator, and so it you know if I take a picture and I put it up there, I just kind of expect people are going to buy it. No, they they want to hear the story. It, it's this thick and this wide and this long and you know all the inf- you know way more information that i would typically give um and so you know how do you buy it and is it where's the shipping cost and and all those things so yeah um moving away from the forum bases was really i'm severely dyslexic moderate to severely dyslexic and stuff like instagram has been a godsend to me because it it's so much more visual I mean, yeah, yeah, I got to fill in all those really obnoxious details. But in the days of the forums where everything was communi- was was written communication, it it drove mm-hmm. me nuts. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't do that. I need pictures. Um, I'm a visual visual learner, visual person, so you know, I can I can watch somebody doing something, and it's like, okay, I get how to do it, and then. You know, people that I've had helping me or, or friends come over and they go, well, how do you do this? And I'm like, if you just watch, you'd know. But yeah, they don't. It's amazing. That seems to be really consistent among creative people being spatially aware. Okay. And I don't know if it's a chicken or an egg thing, but I have found makers, be it woodworkers or potters or knife makers, people that, that make Mm-hmm. Um, are very visually cued, spatially cued. Um, right. Yeah, they, they'll go nuts if they have to read directions, but if you show them how to do it once, they've got it. Yeah, I hate directions, you know. And then, you know, and if I get something that's shipped from a foreign country and you can tell it's written by an engineer that lives in that foreign country and you're like, this makes no sense to me. Um, <laughs> you must place a pawn, slot B. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I, um, you know, I, I know my my brain doesn't work like everybody else's. And, um, you know, like you asked a while ago about inspiration. You know, I was I, I could wake up with an idea, you know, or be driving down the highway and look out in a field and uh, it reminds me of something or, you know, whatever. And so I get a I get a lot of the concepts, you know, and I, I just hand them off to Mikey and, you know, she runs with them. And it it really works out a, a great working relationship where, um, you know, she can, she doesn't need direction, you know, or very little. Just say, hey, here's the idea. What do you think? She runs with it. And so, you know, some of this stuff, like, like she, you know, we did the Star Wars lightsaber stuff. I couldn't tell you anything about Star Wars. <laughs> um, I don't watch TV, you know, so it's like, I mean, I, I will watch TV, but I don't watch TV. So I would rather be out in the garage. And it sounds like it's a great situation where both of you can stick to what you do well. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It, it's, um, it helps me out tremendously and, you know, it allows her to, to be creative and she came from the, you know, fashion design industry. So, you know, I, knives aren't her, her passion and, but I want her to, um, you know, to, to enjoy what she's doing. And, 
you know, knives could end up being just a small part of the business. I mean, you don't, this, this whole thing has opened so many doors that I never expected. I can see jewelry, pins, um, architectural details. Yeah. I saw, or we've seen quite a few duck calls and stuff that seem to be made out of it too. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that was fairly recent. There, there was a guy that reached out to me and, you know, that presented a new challenge because they bore a big hole down the center, you know, as part of making the call. And it seemed like every failure that happened was, was happening while boring the hole. And so I'm not a machinist, but I, I do some machining, you know, and, and the one thing that, um, you know, any material that you're using will give you feedback. You know, it's like, you have to be able to understand what it's telling you. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, if, if a guy says, well, yeah, I drew, I drilled a hole in there and, and this blew up, something's wrong with your material. Um, you know, there's 20 questions that he has to answer before you can agree with him. And, you know, a lot of guys like, like drill bits, I buy the best I can. Um, oh, yeah. You know, that's something I, I don't ever, I don't even look at cheap drill bits. You know, I don't, and I throw them away quickly. Oh yeah, the, the second they're the slightest bit dull, or if it got a little overheated, right, it's gone. Yeah, it's not going to do you any good. So get rid of it before you wreck something else. Yeah, blow up. Our- we need to get you one of those drill bit sharpeners, Dan, so you can save some money on drill bits. You know, and uh, I have considered it. My biggest problem is they usually get dull because they get overheated, and you know, like with a knife, once you blow the temper, you've blown the temper. And my biggest my biggest concern is keeping a true straight hole and not getting blowout because nothing upsets me more than ruining a beautiful piece of micarta because my bit was dull and I used a little too much pressure and I blew out the back. Yeah, I usually don't have a problem with that too much with micarta or G10 or anything. It's I always find it for a lot of the woods. I end up getting more of that problem. And I'd. Because I spent so much time woodworking, I probably have a better feel for wood because I'm the inverse. I, I very rarely blow out wood, but I'm, I really have got a horrible habit of uh, G10 and Micarta. It happens for me a ton with ironwood. Yeah. And then, and then the ironwood gumming up in the flutes and stuff, too. I've tried all sorts of tricks for, for that. One of the guys that I work with that used to do exotic necks on guitars, he said to drill into like a cheap bar of soap to help lubricate up the flutes and used a drill bit that has like a high angle to help cheer or clear the chips more. And I just still still have a problem with it no matter what I do. It's hot and oily or hard and oily, so it's going to gum it up. You know what, yeah. what um, might work on that is some of that wax like used for aluminum. You ever um, like furniture wax you're talking about? No, it, it's it's made for for cutting and milling. Yeah, it, uh, a lot of times they'll use it for bandsaw blades too. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it's expensive. It might be like thirty bucks. I'll have to I'll have to investigate. Yeah, thirty bucks a tube or something like that. I'll send you a picture. Okay. Of, of mine. Um, I I think the stuff I originally got was Johnson, but um, the stuff I have now is different. But sometimes those, you know, just a little bit of, of something like that can make a huge difference. This might be a better question for Mikey, but uh, what uh, what makes your material stand out? Well, the design. I, I think it's the design. Um, you know, we never, 
we never are completely satisfied with just staying with the same, you know, it's my, like my most popular seller is the Mexican blanket. And, um, and I drug my feet putting that together. You know, it was requested a couple of times and, and finally I said, okay, I'll do it. You know, and it's my number one seller. Uh, you know, it's, uh, and it's funny because I, you never well, I don't, you know, the, I'm an, I'm an R and D guy. And, and so making the same thing over and over again, isn't really my cup of tea. Um, and so, you know, I want to do new stuff all the time. Once I solve the problem, it's not fun anymore. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, I, I love it when, when somebody gives me a problem, you know, then, then I got something to look forward to, you know, some of the, the more recent patterns, they evolve and they, and, you know, they develop, you know, some of it is, is, is just by the feedback that we get. And so not too long ago, probably, I don't know, six or eight months ago, we decided to do a little test and we took and made two blocks with all the same, uh, fabric, you know, tried to, tried to make two identical blocks. And then on one, we put rope in there. So it would look like knots in, in, in wood. Mm-hmm. And we called one naughty and one nice. And then, um, we, you know, we asked, what do you guys like better? And, um, it was just split right down the middle. And it, and well, it depends if it's a big knife, I'd use this one, a little knife, I'd use that one. And, you know, it, there is no pat answer. Uh, just so much of it is, is preference. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It, it's funny. It, it makes it fun. You just, it's like, uh, you know, you guys are, are dads, you know, when you have, a, you have a child, you're like, huh, let's see what it looks like, you know? And it's fun. And it's kind of the same way with this. The, the circuit board handles I, I do, um, my son had a side gig decommissioning some computers and he brought up a motherboard and said, can we make a knife handle out of this? And I said, well, there's one way to find out. Yeah. And I assume it's kind of the same concept. Can we do this? I don't know. Let's find out. Yeah. That, I mean, that would get me in kind of trouble as a kid, you know, like, I wonder what would happen, right? <laughs> I wonder what would happen if I stick this nickel in an outlet. <laughs> well, unfortunately, like, like the, I mean, the, some of the early stuff I did, you know, and, and, uh, I re- when I was four years old, my, I was the youngest and, and my older brother was six and, and we took a eight foot pram and, and rode it across Puget Sound and it was leaky, you know, and we, we had a coffee can, we kept bailing it out. And, um, you know, it's like, we ended up going over in this uh, restricted zone for the Navy, you know, and they got on the bullhorn and they were yelling at us and we were just going to see what we want to go to the other side, you know? (laughs) And then, you know, as we got older, we, we made black powder. We, we saw the recipe in a dictionary and it's like, Hey, we got this stuff. We can make this, you know, and we started blowing up tree stumps and, you know, that's, that was fun for us. Nowadays, you don't really. It's all fun and games till you find out what's the worst that could happen. <laughs> we never got hurt. You know, it, it was, um, I guess we were just lucky. You know, God was watching out for us. He says, uh, somebody better. These guys are nuts. But um, we, one day we were, we got a little bit sophisticated with the black powder. And we would use an uh, electrical extension cord for our fuse. 
any rate, we we had a, a stump. <laughs> it was about no twenty four inches. In- before you oh. go too, <laughs> before you should go too much further, you should know that one of our fifteen listeners does work with the ATF. Okay, I'm just saying. Right. <laughs> and so we, yeah, the knife, you know, we, the knife professor podcast does not support uh, black powder stump removal. <laughs> no. Well, we so we we drilled a, a one inch hole in this you know in this chunk of wood and put our black powder in there in the extension cord and I won't tell you all the details and then um, you know and then we got some some bondo like you know auto body bondo right and you know you figure oh yeah we crammed some rags in there and bondoed it up you know and we. We plugged that thing in, and what we didn't know was our next door neighbor was out working in his yard. And we plugged this thing in, and, and a chunk of that stump flew over the six foot fence into, landed about five feet from him. And all of a sudden, we hear this, uh, "What the hell was that?" You know, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I can only was, imagine. <laughs> yeah, what was what? I didn't hear anything. So, but you know, times were different then. So. We we had another neighbor down the street that was a engineer and he worked for DuPont and he came down one day and gave my brother a, a DuPont blasters handbook and you know I think my brother was probably fourteen or something maybe when when that happened. If you think you're going to do this, at least know what you're doing. Oh yeah, yeah. So yeah, different times. But what's the process like for when you make Macarta? Well. Um, you know that I mean the first thing, of course. You know you got you get get your fabric, and and that's not as easy as it seems. We you know we're having a lot of discrepancies in color, and sometimes you don't see that until after you laid the block up. So now we're having to be a lot more careful about selecting color because even from the same dye lots, you'll get differences. So anyway, that's cut. I use aluminum forms typically that I make. You know I go a, a maximum of two layers of fabric. And then I, I squeegee the epoxy into it and build the block. I used to do four layers because the epoxy was a quicker set, but you get a better product. You know, two layers, is it works good. And then it goes in the vacuum chamber anywhere between about six and nine hours, something like that. And then it goes into the press. And, you know, you, you press it up and then you, you give it some heat not too hot and and let it sit in there for a few hours and then I take it out and I put it in a in an oven for a post cure and that just that just ensures that everything is cured and then take it you know take it out um, I usually try to take it out of the form before it goes in the the oven um, sometimes I I'm not able to but I found that if if I can work with it while it's still warm it's a little more forgiving, you know, as far as like getting your hands cut and things like that. It, it's really hard on your hands. Uh, you know, working construction, you think you have calluses and everything and not the same. Yeah. What are some of the must have tools do you have for your shopping? The press would obviously be one of them, probably the table saw. What are some of the other ones? Um, well, yeah, those are, and, and I'm actually going to be buying a bandsaw probably this month or next month. Um, cause I want to be able to, well, for one thing, you lose less material on the curve, you know, and that, that eats up, that's a lot. And, you know, some of these, 
you know, specifications are, are material that's 125,000 thick. And you're taking almost the same with the blade as what you're leaving, you know. Um, you're usually, what, an eighth of an inch? The the Pergo blade's under an eighth. It, I figure an eighth, but I think it's probably closer to 100,000. Um, but, you know, if you kind of have to, you know, gauge that. If if the cut's not super smooth, you're going to yeah. lose more sanding it. And, you know, I try to be generous with the with the cuts, but, you know, I, I've set up, I've made a, a jig or a, a device to where when I cut uh, the scales, I'm cutting, I'm measuring from the off side of the blade. So when I'm cutting an eighth inch uh, thick piece of material, that material is not between the blade and the fence. It's, it's on the off side. And so it's a lot safer that way. So are you using like a crosscut sled or are you pushing that still through with the fence? Uh, yeah, no sled. Cause I, I wouldn't get enough, uh, depth of cut with a sled. I, I made a beautiful one. <laughs> right. It doesn't work for what I'm doing, you know? And so the, the band saw that I'm getting, it'll, it'll be able to resaw up to 14 inches. So I don't have to worry about that. I want to take the, the bun cut and be able to, make slices of that i think that would be a an interesting pattern to work with that would be and you said that was eight inches diameter right the the bun pieces you use yep right yeah i've got um well kind of some of the things i got in the works plan wise is uh, a friend of mine in california has some 14 inch water pipe and so i want to make some big buns and then if you ain't got big buns (laughs) yeah Right. Sir, mix a lot. <laughs> and uh, so, so that, you know, I could, I could easily like cut those in half and resaw them in the, in the, um, in the bandsaw or I just, I, I've learned that I just, I just can't limit, limit myself to what I need today. You know, it's, you always got to be thinking, I don't know where this is going to go. Cause that, this whole business has been that way. I, I remember talking uh, to Derek early on, you know, and, and looking at these other suppliers and, and envying them thinking, man, I'd like to be as good as those guys are. And, you know, I feel like this whole thing has been, um, an amazing journey. You know, it's like, I never anticipated that I would be doing this full time and, you know, having a room full of fabric, you know, ready to go and a room full of material. And, a, you know, I sold a bunch of the contracting tools and bought tools or made tools specific for this. And, you know, I, I recently picked up a metal lathe and I got a good deal on it, but it's like, I want to have fun. And, and to me, a lathe is one of the most fun tools you could have. For sure. And so I want to turn some of this stuff on a lathe. That would be interesting. Yeah. Well, there's, you know, I've talked to some guys that make pool cues and they make them in like 18 inch segments and I can do that. So, you know, I'd like to sell to those guys and so you start selling it in rounds instead of blocks and scales and stuff? Yeah, I um I've I've done a couple of experiments, you know, how to how to do it how to do it in rounds. And then and then also guys have been asking about making some, you know, dowel pins with it and that could be interesting. I don't know I don't know how durable it would be. I think the pool cues would be interesting too. Yeah. Yeah, and there's you know, part of 
I don't know. There's, there's just been so many changes in, in evolutions in this whole thing, but it, it was for a while, I just absolutely hated making paper micarta. And, you know, a guy, it, I think his brother made pool cues or something, and they were paying these outrageous prices for the, the, the vintage yeah. white paper, you know? And so as, as I got to using the slower epoxy, you know, then I could make it. And but we, we made a block today and it took over three hours to lay it up. And you're standing in one spot, you know, putting sheet after sheet after sheet. And it's 110 pound weight. It, it's heavy cardstock, but it'll come out about two, two inches thick. And, you know, and it, it'll probably be all sold this time next week. And it's, it's almost, it almost feels defeating. You know, it's like, I just made that and all these guys bought it. Now I don't have any, now I got to make more, you know? And it, yeah. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm trying to feel sympathetic for you, but I just, it's not there. <laughs> well, if you ever make it to Idaho, I'll have you make up one of those blocks and you'll be going, man, this sucks. <laughs> well, I, hard. I just don't have a lot of sympathy for people are buying it faster than I can make it. Yeah. Um, well, I tr- if I if I come lay it up, do I get to keep it? Ooh, oh yeah. <laughs> well, I you know I actually I, I was thinking it would be fun. I think to have like a, a weekend retreat, you know, and and have four or five guys come out and and design a block and and build it and walk away with it. You know, I mean, we did recently. We did a a design with Mikey. You know, a half hour design consultation and and we'd build a block and, and you'd get a set of scales. And if you wanted to buy the whole block, you'd have the option to do that. And that was received well. Um, I would do that. Yeah. You know, that's, I, I think it's a, a great way for somebody to, to get what they want and, and do it through somebody that's set up to do it. You know, guys, guys will say, hey, I want to, I want to do this. And I tell them, if you're not going to do just this, I wouldn't really do it. It's messy. It's expensive. My clothes don't wear out. They, they break, you know, the epoxy gets on them and pretty soon they'll stand up in the corner by themselves and you, and you bend over and they break, you know, you get a new pair, right? I've made exactly one piece of micarta in my entire life. And I made that one piece and I said, there's a reason people charge so much for this and I'm going to pay it. I mean, yeah. I made a couple pieces with the coffee sack and it took me so long to to make that i've only made i think i made three sheets of it and i used it on a couple of knives that were for special family members but that was that was the last i made of it Uh, apart from the difficulty and the expense and the tools part of it was i realized i had time to be a knife maker or a materials maker i didn't have time to do both right and Right. I would much rather pay somebody who has already figured out all the things not to do right. than have to go through that myself. Yeah, the learning curve, you know, it's expensive. Yeah, that's part of the reason I don't stabilize my own wood and stuff, too. Just buy it all. Right. You're better off. You know, you do what you love, you know, it, especially if you're a part-time maker. Don't mess around with stuff you don't want to do. You know, the, just the way that I think about things you know, I see guys sometimes going through all kinds of labor, you know, trying to make something that shouldn't work, work. And it's like, unless you enjoy that, you know, why torment yourself? It's hard, especially when you're starting out to let some of those projects go and you don't have a ton of money to begin with. So you're trying to squeeze it every which way you can. That's why I started 
trying to make some of the coffee sack stuff was I couldn't couldn't find it at the time. And I was like, right. well, how hard can it be? So I bought a big jug of West Systems uh, epoxy and I uh, went to town and was like, oh, it's a lot harder than I thought it would be. Yeah. And, and you have that expense. And, and then the other thing is the hardest material for me to make right now is burlap. It's, there's just so much air in the fiber. You know, you think you have it saturated and you squeeze it and you just squeeze more air out of the fiber and then you got stuff full of air bubbles. I've struggled using burlap because I, I have trouble with the fiber tearing out. That when I get to the yeah. to the finer grit sanding, the fiber starts to tear out, and then I have little little imperfections. And and that's probably because it it's not completely saturated. Yeah, yeah. I've had a problem with using even other people's coffee sack where uh, it gets wet, and then it starts to kind of fluff up, and then you got to hit it with some. 2000 grit sandpaper and make it smooth again yeah right yeah and it it's um you know i've i've had that happen i've i've had some you know i've had plenty of accidents that are things happen i when i first started making rag my cart I, I shipped some down south and you know the guy got it and it it looked like a airplane propeller and so i i had another piece and i took a picture of it with a straight edge on it and I sent it to him, and by the time he got it, it looked like another airplane propeller. I had some back and forth on some unstabilized wood going to Arizona. Yeah, you know, mailed him the knife, and he can't. And he said, "Hey, the the handle separated, so you know, mail it back. So I'll fix or replace it." And I got it in the shop, and it was fine. There was nothing wrong with it. Oh man! <laughs> I sent it back to him, and he took pictures of this separation. I'm like, all right, I, I don't know what happened. He sent it back to me. It got to me, and I sent him pictures of it being perfectly fine. Yeah. And it was the, the changes in humidity going from Georgia to Arizona. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. But, you know, I, what, I, what I have learned about the knife community, because I, I wasn't really like a, a knife fanatic or anything, um, you know, before I started doing this. Um, but as a, a group of people, you know, it, it's, it's the best community I've ever been involved in. and. They're helpful. They're gracious, uh, understanding. If you mess up, you know, Hey, don't worry about it. You know, it's, I've even had, you know, stuff that was absolutely totally my fault. And guys say, no, it happens. Don't worry about it. And it's like, let me send you some new stuff. Oh, it's okay. And then, you know, it's, uh, it's amazing. You know, it construction's not like that. No, <laughs> I did. I did structural repair for 10 years. And nobody ever said, oh, don't worry about it. That stuff happens. Right. Exactly. And so, um, no, it, it's a great community. And, you know, I, I feel like I got friends all over the country and, you know, the good feedback. And, and, and honestly, sometimes they're so complimentary. It, it's, it's detrimental because, you know, brutal honesty would, would be more helpful, you know. And it's like if, if the quality is not quite what it should be or something like that, you know, you're, you're really better to hear the truth so you can try to make changes all right well in that case your punctuality is not so good and i don't like the tone of your voice yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah i know this is a nice work Dan. punctuality that was a oh man that was that was frustrating <laughs> me i was i was throwing things yesterday i was like all right because it's out in the shop i can fix it if it's in here on electronics man it just drives me nuts <laughs> uh, 
Well, like a, a dial caliper, you know, I, I had an electro electronic one because it was given to me. And it, you know, it was, it was a Toyo, it's a good one. And it started doing a couple of goofy things and I it just I hate it. So I went and bought an analog. Um you know, I just You know what else is great about the analog ones? What? The battery's not dead. I know. I know, <laughs> right? And I've got a I've got a really nice set of digital stare calipers that I had at the machine shop because we were always going back and forth between inches and millimeters so much that that made a lot of sense. But almost every time I pick those things up anymore, the battery's dead. So I actually have to pull the batteries out of the the caliper when I put it back in the box. So it's not dead every time I open the box. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but it, and like Mikey and Karen, if, if they're trying to measure stuff and they have the analog one, it drives them nuts. So, you know, I, I got them an inexpensive electronic one and it's like, you know, it just doesn't compute to them. But, you know, I think in inches and millimeters and stuff that drives me nuts. I don't, the only reason I know about what six millimeters is is because I've got a rifle at six millimeters. I have Um, cheat sheets all over the shop because some of my suppliers are, uh, metric. Some of them are, yeah, are in decimals, and then some of them are imperial. Yeah. So I have, I have cheat sheets all over the shop of you know, this many millimeters is this tenth of an inch, or is this fraction of an inch? Right. Because I, yeah. I just get my head around it. Yeah, with all your woodworking stuff, you're probably always like sixty fourths of an inch. Oh yeah. Well, I can convert that way easy enough, you know. But you get millimeters in there, and I'm lost. Yeah, I always have to do the division in my head to figure out what the decimal is well in in woodworking you're you know you're doing thickness uh by width by length so two by four is you know two by four by eight feet right and actually it's one and a half by three and a half by eight just to be confusing yeah yeah exactly (laughs) and um it it used to be two by four yeah and that back in the day well right and they you know even even things like we take for granted like on a two by four there's radius edges on there and that all that all spawned from uh reducing the shipping weight you know it it weighed less so yeah um i mean you, you never know right but so and when i make a block to me it's one and seven eighths thick by eight inches wide by 14 inches long because if it was a piece of wood that's how you would call it out yeah and then you know and, and somebody will say well how wide is it well what width you know because they could be talking about thickness or they could be talking about width because mm-hmm. once you, once you cut the block, then you're, you're kind of looking at it different. The thickness then becomes the width. Mm-hmm. Yep. Absolutely. Keeps it fun. So where can people get your, your G Carta? Um, well, I have a website and it's, uh, G Carta dot big com, And there's a, a link on my bio on Instagram. And so, uh, Instagram is, is GL Hansen and sons. How is that? G L underscore Hansen, something like that. I think G dot L underscore Hansen and sons. Well, we'll have it in the, the link. And then due to your, if somebody wants to do a custom order, you mentioned having a consultation with Mikey. What's the process of getting a custom order? If you do in fact take them. Um, so, well, that was, you know, we were kind of doing a test with that. And so, we're we're kind of working through that to see what works, what doesn't work. So Mikey lives in California. And, and so when I uh, decided to move up here, she agreed that she would 
come up three or four times a year, you know, in, in design. So I, I just, I did not want to lose her talent um, and what she brings to the table. And so, um, you know, like she'll be gone uh, next month. Um, but at any rate, that's, we're, we're still kind of figuring that out. I, I do it too, but she does it better. <laughs> um, but anyway, I, I, I put, you know, I don't do custom orders and for the, for the simple reason of that attracts a lot of headaches. And, um, I really, I'm at a, a point in my life where I want to do what I want to do. And, you know, I want to say, I wonder what happens if you do this and make black powder that day if I want, you know, <laughs> I mean, you guys know if you take a custom order knife, sometimes that it, it makes you hate life, you know? Yeah. Can you make it a, a half an inch longer? And it's like, well, it's kind of late for that. You know, there is yeah. people are surprised to find out how much less money there is in custom orders that no matter how much you charge for yeah. custom orders, you usually struggle to make any money at it. Yeah. A bunch of the time you. Uh, spend going back, do like 12 emails back and forth with the customer and say, okay, I'll get back to you and then never hear anything. Well, and tracking down materials and it's huge. the R&D cost of doing a one-off, it just, I get it. Yeah. Yep. And and with what I'm doing, experimental uh, is is just not that predictable. So like, for instance, I I typically only use natural fiber for anything. I just have never had luck with a nylon or polyester or anything synthetic. It just doesn't finish well. It won't absorb well. I had I had something it was actually a Mexican hammock uh piece of Macarta and it was polyester and it would just melt. You'd I'd have to like keep spraying it with water whenever I was sanding it so it didn't oh, man. uh melt. Yeah, that just kinda takes the fun out of it, yeah. you know. But you know, we have like for instance, uh, you know, people might want to blaze orange. I haven't found a fiber that will look blaze orange after you mix it with epoxy that's natural fiber. It dulls out a little white, doesn't it? It, it, it? Most everything darkens quite a bit. And so um, like some of our, our colors, like sunflower, is uh, really kind of an orange color. It starts out bright yellow. Um, you know, the, the darker colors, uh, burgundy or purple or, or navy blue, they, they come out... Hmm almost black. So if, if you're doing a custom order, you know, you're trying to second guess how the fabric's going to come out and then second guess if the customer is going to like it, you know, and the list goes on. If, if you're just making what you want, it doesn't come out, you know, it's, well, somebody, somebody always likes it. Yeah. You know, we, we could come up with something and look at each other and just go, well, don't really like that. Put it up there and people love it. So it's hard to guess what people are going to like to always, always. And anytime I try to, I'm wrong. You know, just as far as, you know, like sometimes if I, if I haven't cast blocks for a while and it's like, all right, I need to generate some income here and I'll, I'll do something I know will sell well. I don't know what sells well. I know what has sold well, but that was two weeks ago, not today. It, you know, I could, I could make a block and sell it out in a day and, Make another block, and it'll sit on the shelf for a month. Every, every blade show, the thing that I know is going to sell doesn't sell, and the thing that I did at the last second sells first. I, yeah, it drives me nuts. And the number of other makers that I've talked to that have the same problem. Yeah, yeah. So, so doing it the way I'm doing it, I can just 
make, you know, as much as I want and, you know, and then market it, you know, put it on the web, put it on Instagram, put it on Facebook. And, um, if it doesn't sell, got a nice shelf for it to sit on and it'll, it'll come around. I, I did, um, it was over a year ago. I did one, I called it cross rag and it was, uh, I'm a mixture of rag and cross cut. And, you know, I just thought, eh, let's see what happens, you know? And I made this and I thought, you know, that's kind of cool. It almost looks like rock and almost looks like wood. And, and so I put it up and now oh, like two guys bought some and then it just like went away. So, you know, you put it on the shelf and you make something else and, and that was like, I think November. And then about like March or something, I took new pictures of it and I put it up there and a guy commented and he goes, man, great idea. What, you know, how do you come up with these new ideas? Right. And it wasn't a new idea at that point. <laughs> and, uh, you're kind of like, well, timing's everything, I guess. Speaking of new ideas, uh, you got anything new on the horizon? Anything, uh, anything you want to give us the sneak peek on? Well, let's see. Um, well, yeah, I, I, um, I bought a CNC router and I want to start making uh, handgun grips. Um, and I, and I want to do that with the leather, the cow carta. That'll be very, um, that, you know, I, I think it'll, it'll be neat. It, it has a different feel to it. Um, but I, I want to start doing that. I, um, you know, like I said, I'm an R and D guy, so it's like uh, I want to mess around with some different stuff. I've done some uh, some 1911 grips and some, I think Smith and Wesson that were they were flat on the side that goes against the handle. Uh-huh. Uh But the contoured stuff, I just the the time and money to get the fit right was not was not beneficial for me. Yeah, were you doing it all by hand? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, with the the CNC routers and stuff, they've they've got lots of programs that are all pre-programmed in for the exact right size and modeled up and stuff. Yeah, that that would. I'm excited to see where that goes. I could see some, uh, I could see some very cool grips in my future. Well, um, yeah, I I think so. And you know, 1911 is is definitely the place to start. And you know, I have I have a customer that's bought from me that you know offered to give me advice and help. And he had some grips and another customer saw him at a show and said, man, this guy's doing stuff like you're doing it, you know? And I said, who was it? And he told me, and it's like, Oh, well that was my stuff. <laughs> Very cool. Um, which is, has blown my mind. I think the first time that that happened was, uh, the blade show West, not this last time, but the year before. And uh, a friend of mine, uh, you guys know uh, Nick Timpson, Birdbiss Knives? Um, not offhand. Okay. He, ma- he makes slip joints. And we, we started about the same time. And he lived like half an hour from my house. And, you know, we get together. And uh, he went to Blade Show West. And he goes, man, these, these guys are talking about you. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and I had, I had recently done the Westing Foe, which, you know, I was trying to make paper look aged and so i would you know put some darker paper with lighter paper and some of the lines and different things and um you know and that was fun that that was a challenge i i gotta make it again but you know it was stuff like that i I like to do that so somebody has a a a challenge i'm up for it 
Speaking of Blade Show, are you gonna be uh you gonna be at Blade Show East or West this year? Well, um so far the the only knife show I've ever made was was the the California custom in Southern California and I loved it. And I didn't I didn't take anything to sell or or have a table. And what I learned was if I was selling there, I, I wouldn't have enjoyed it. Um, you know, I want to talk to makers and meet them and, you know, not be responsible for anything else. But I, and I plan to go to, to blade show West this last year. And it, the problem is I'm, I'm just so busy is, is taking time out of the shop. Yeah. You know, I, if, if I take off for four days, that's a lot of production. And then, and it's just me. So I'm the guy that has to make it up and that, then that's hard. So hopefully, um, a friend of mine from California moved here a week before I did. And so he, he comes over and I'm, I'm teaching him how to do it. And if, you know, I get him up to speed and I can take off, I'll certainly do it. I would, I would love to, I'd love to go to every show. I'd certainly like to see you. Yeah. Well, thanks. I, I, you know what? I, I love meeting you guys. It, it's, uh, you know, you, you put a face, um, to somebody you've talked to on the phone or, or, you know, sent material to, and it's like, Oh, wow, this is, it's amazing. You know, it's uh, a very receptive community. And, you know, I just, I'd, I'd like to go to every show. Yeah. I've only been to Blade Show East and it's uh, pretty overwhelming how many people are there. It's just uh, amazing how much bigger it is, how big it is. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's, I, I shipped material to people that were staying in hotels around there um, mm-hmm. that were from other countries. You know, they, they wanted to haul it back home and, you know, we've, we've currently, well, we've shipped all over the world. Very cool. At first I wouldn't do that. No international shipping. And I was warned about all the nightmares and, and then I, I looked into it a little bit and it wasn't as bad as I thought, but it's got its own set of problems. But I, I like, I like shipping it, um, you know, out of the country as far as other guys get to get to use it. And then you see it on, on somebody's knife. I mean, that was overwhelming for me um being new to the community i didn't know anybody right and you know i I would be selling i I remember one time i i sold some um to alan alishowitz and and he posted it and a a guy copied it and he sent it to me and he goes oh you're selling to the big guns now and i'm like who and he goes alan alishowitz and i'm like oh and so you know i started researching it's like oh man this this guy's a great maker um but i didn't know because, you know, new guy, I don't know anybody. Right. So yep. if your last name's not Buck or Gerber, I probably haven't heard of you. So <laughs> <laughs> nice. Cool. And then, and then I got to meet him in, in Southern California. Very cool. Yeah. Do you have anything else uh, you wanted to plug before we call it a night? Um, I am getting, you know, more, more new equipment. So there's stuff on the horizon. Um, I, 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 I'm buying a panograph a 3d panograph and, you know, I was asked, what are you going to make with it? And I said, I don't know yet. I, you know, I haven't figured that part out, but you know, something. I've so. seen a lot of guys buying those recently. Yeah. I don't even know how they work, but. <laughs> You'll find out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. See what happens, right? Yep. Yeah. So you can find Greg's stuff on Instagram and we'll have a whole bunch of links in the the bottom of the, the show notes. So you can uh, the link directly there. 
You can find the podcast at knifeperspective.com and you can connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. And uh, you can find the podcast on many of the different podcast apps, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Tuned In Radio, all those. uh, And you can also stream it directly from our website. And you can get in touch with Dan at dogwoodcustomknives.com or Dogwood Custom Knives on Facebook and Instagram. And if you'd like to give them uh, an email and uh, cause them some pain there, you can email them at dan at dogwoodcustomknives.com. You can get in touch with me at cagedailyknives.com and cagedailyknives on Facebook and Instagram. And I'm Kyle at cagedailyknives.com and Kyle at knifeperspective.com if you want to use either of those emails. Been great learning about uh, the all your product, Greg, and hope you can make it to Blade Show East to meet you this year and love learning a little bit more about the the man behind the the product. I, I appreciate it. I, I hope I can make it. And thank you for having me on. This has been great. I, I really enjoyed it. You got anything else, Dan? I think that's covered it for one morning. All righty. <laughs> thank you all for uh, making it to the end. If you made it to the end and uh, uh, please leave us a rating and review on uh, your podcast. Um, service of choice if you can that really helps us get bound by more stuff so hope you guys enjoy learning about micarta and have a great night say good night kyle good night kyle good night kyle (laughs) well let's take it to the edge because that's what's expected in this discussion this is the night prospective let's get to the point